0: Corrections, and Bear Markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Gaia.
1: So listen, everybody, again, thank you for joining, uh, as usual, those that keep coming back uh, day after day. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Special guest for the hour is Mike Silva. Uh, who's got a phenomenal following on YouTube, uh, on uh, his channel, is Figuring Out Money on YouTube. I encourage everybody to take a look. I always uh, like listening to Mike's take on markets, and given that he and I think similarly, that's not a a surprise. Confirmation bias is a very real thing. So, Mike, for those who are not familiar with uh, who you are, your background, set the stage as far as, how you got involved in markets, how did you start the YouTube channel, and how you built such a large following? Then we'll get into the current uh, investment environment here. Of course. Well, first off, thanks
2: for bringing me on. I, I don't do these live events too frequently, and uh, you know it was all because basically you came to my YouTube channel and helped me out. You've been so kind throughout this process, and I just got to say thank you for putting me on before Walter Deemer because that is a tough act to follow. So how did I get involved in the markets? I've been involved for quite some time, and I honestly, it, it goes back to like, Really, my 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 childhood, I grew up playing blackjack with my grandpa, playing poker with them, and it all became something about managing risk. And growing up, I also really enjoyed videos like those treasure hunt videos, Goonies, National Treasure. So it all I really enjoy looking for individual stocks, kind of like treasure hunting. My approach to the markets is simple. I, I only control what I can control. And I say these four four things that we can control is what to buy, how much to buy, when to buy and when to sell. So those are the four things I really just focus on primarily. I started a YouTube channel a couple of years back. And the real reason why I did that was I had this small email list. And I would send it off to friends and family about individual stocks that I found that I thought might be potential good investments or swing trades, right? I'm I'm primarily a swing trader. And you know it was cool. I got some good feedback. And then I just said, you know what, why don't I just start posting it up on YouTube? And I started primarily doing that just to document and hold myself more accountable. And before you know it, it kind of just took off from that point. You know, the the pandemic happened, and then I started doing these daily analysis, and, and people just enjoyed it. I think it's just because I kept things simple, kept it jargon-free, and yeah, 100,000 subscribers later, and I got to thank my audience for kind of supporting me throughout that process.
1: All right. So you mentioned blackjack poker, and a lot of traders will often make those parallels that in trading and investing is not that much different from being at the at the gambling uh, table, so to speak. But I always push back a little bit on that idea because for the most part, probabilities are, are known, right? When it comes to a Las Vegas game, poker, when it comes to, to a lot of these things, you don't really know what the probabilities are, except with hindsight to some extent, when it comes to trading and investing. So I want you to talk about for the audience, how do you think about Managing an unknowable future, and how do you think about the probabilities of something happening in terms of how it should cause you to position somewhere?
2: Yeah, there's like I said, there's four things that we can really control um, in the markets, and that's kind of my main primary focus. And it's what to buy, how much of it you should buy, when you should buy it, and when you should sell it. Now, I'm really my kind of view on the markets is I use technical analysis to really. Judge those four things. Technical analysis—it's it, not used for me primarily to predict move. It's more of a tool to help forecast the trend and also mitigate risk. And when I'm approaching, you know, various stocks or searching for individual stocks or even my approach to the markets, there's some basic principles in technical analysis that I always keep in the forefront of my mind. And that's one price action. It's emotion, um, and by emotion, I mean you have this barometer of either extreme fear or extreme greed. And you can see that in candlesticks, right? You have these big bright green candles, it's an authoritative candle, could be very greed. And you could visually see these things compress if the market squeezes up higher, and then all of a sudden you start to notice the range of these bodies start to narrow, which could indicate that you know emotion of this move is dying down. Um, another pr- basic principle, so price action equals emotion, but price action and volume are the, the king indicators. And what I mean by that, and I guess a, a close third would probably be something like volatility, which price action can determine the volatility or the, the range of the candlestick. But price action and volume are the key indicators. And most of these indicators that are you know built are all derived from price action and volume. Um, another principle is the trend is your friend. So I'm primarily a trend trader. So I believe that strong stocks get stronger and weak stocks get weaker. And you got to ask, OK, well, what's the length of a trend? Typically, i say three months. Right. If you have higher highs, higher lows, the trend is probably up as long as it's around three months. You could have a neutral trend and you can have a downtrend, lower lows, lower highs. And then the probably the one most important thing that I nail down is markets alternate between range contraction and range expansion. So I'm constantly looking for periods of contraction and expansion. And during times of expansion, that's when volatility is a little bit higher. And that's typically when I'm not entering into any any trades, or you got to be very tactical. And we've been in a market where it seems like we're just bouncing back and forth in a constant kind of expansion sort of a market.
1: I think that's very well articulated about range contraction or range expansion, right? Because that, to your point, hits on volatility. And usually, you really want to try to avoid actively trading stocks in high volatility, even though the argument is that volatility is the trader's friend, it's also the trader's enemy because of whipsaw risk. And I think that's uh, an important point. Now, I like the way that you frame the four types of control. When you're an individual trader, you have control over your opportunity set. That's another type of control, right? What it is that you're trading to express a particular bet. In my world, as you know, it's, it's different. Bonds have not acted as your sort of classic risk-off safe haven that benefits from stock market volatility. On the contrary, during stock market volatility this year, bonds have actually been more volatile. Right, Yields have been spiking. And usually, it's not my opinion, historically when you have high stock market volatility, the best way to play volatility is not by actively trading stocks, it's actually by going along the long bond right? on, tr- on the treasury side. You do a lot of work also with intermarket analysis. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, how the bond market has played out here this year so far, and if that has impacted some of your thinking on the macro direction of not just the stock market, but the likelihood of volatility continuing.
2: You know, you say it frequently, your ability to stick to a strategy matters more than the strategy itself. And the, it, it, it's just been such a difficult environment to be a part of this time around. However, things typically revert back to the mean. And and it just goes to show if the strategy is not working right now and it's very similar to having different trading strategies right if you're you've learned a new strategy and then all of a sudden it's not working so then you want to go find the next big strategy and then all of a sudden it works once or twice and then all of a sudden it doesn't work and then you go look for another strategy and that can be the death of individual traders and even investors because typically when something's not working, that's information, that's data, and it should tell you to okay, basically take your foot off the gas a little bit and be patient because the market will turn again and your strategy will once again work. As far as like looking overall at the market, yeah, I do I do look at various intermarket perspectives and you know the, I posted a chart on Twitter not too long ago and it was one of, one of the common intermarket. Things I looked at was, you know, when when bonds are outperforming commodities, defensive sectors like utilities start outperforming the SPY on a regular, on a relative basis. And right now, if you're looking at both those relative lines and you put up a correlation to this, what I noticed was XLU is outperforming the SPY, right? If we just look at year to date and it's happening at the same time, bonds are outperforming. I'm sorry, commodities are outperforming bonds. And if you look at like on a monthly chart or something like uh, yeah, monthly chart and you pull up the correlation, very rarely do you ever get like a one for one correlation. And that is where we're at now. The other times that we've seen a one for one correlation was in 2008, right before the correlation started breaking again. And that's when the financial crisis happened. And then also right before 2000. So we're kind of right in that realm.
1: I, I love that because that's and, – and for those that are listening, it's not some random uh, thing that he's referring to when he references this connection between utilities, bonds, and commodities because what links everything there is ultimately uh, inflation expectations, right? So why is it that bonds tend to do poorly when commodity prices are rising because commodity prices rise, inflation expectations pick up, cost-push inflationary pressure picks up, so yields should rise as a result. Now, utilities also tend to benefit when – You have a disinflation scare because they're highly levered. They have to roll over their debt. They benefit from rates falling. So to your point, Mike, it's very rare historically when you have these kind of mixed signals where you have defensive areas, which are plays on interest rates and the cost of capital dropping, actually outperforming when interest rates are spiking higher, when – bonds are not doing well at all. So when you've done that study, Mike, what is what was the conclusion? You mentioned, I think, 2008, but in those rare times when you have these kind of massive divergences, how does it typically mean revert to the historical relationship? Is it one of those things where bonds end up being wrong and then catch up to the message of the def- defensive sectors or are the defensive sectors wrong? What What's sort really of the interpretation there?
2: Well, it seems a little bit different from each time it happened, but one of the common things that I noticed was this was all happened during big spikes in oil where the rate of change of oil kind of just flies through the moon. And um, then all of a sudden it comes back down. And that's, it's, it seems throughout history is a, a, most big spikes in oil, which obviously suppresses con- consumer sentiment d- demand. I mean, it hurts the retail sector and that puts a heavy weight on the economy. And it seems as if at that point when things start to really get bad, that's when bonds just take off. So as it stands right now, I'm looking at this, I'm like, okay, it seems like bonds could actually be a, a good trade. It's just timing that right now, it's incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. So let's connect a little bit to your point about trends and how long you think a trend lasts and from an autocorrelation perspective. When you see these, from a technical perspective, these massive divergences take place, is there something in – is there some amount of time that you say to yourself, okay, this divergence has lasted so long now that I have to take a real bet on on betting on something happening to very soon, right? I'm trying to get a sense of – because technicians often talk about divergences, but there's never a discussion around the time under which a divergence lasts that could cause the the convergence, so to speak.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. And my approach, I mean, everyone's approach is going to be a little bit different. So I would look at this as a couple of different ways. So some people might see that divergence and they're like, okay, uh, I think this is going to happen. I'm going to push a trade specifically. Now that's not quite my approach. My approach, I I would go into different timeframes by timeframes that we look at. I look at daily, weekly, but then I'd even drill down even further. And one of the main things that I'd, like to pay attention to is if I see a divergence or, you know, for example, like there's a um, right now, like I couldn't explain, I can't explain why this is why this happens. My post is my most one of my most recent tweets. But if you look at the rate of change between the Barclays tips ETF, which is SPIP, and, and you put that through a GOVT, so the relative strength line, the rate of change of that, every time that spikes up through zero to around 1.3, volatility. It's almost as if the last nine out of nine times has been like some sort of early indication that volatility is right around the corner, and it just triggered today or just on Friday once again. And that tells me, okay, the last nine out of nine times, it showed that volatility might pick up here very soon. That doesn't mean that I'm just going to put a huge bet out there. What I do is I'll look at to a smaller time frame. And for example, if I'm trading the IWM and I think that the IWM is going to go down, I want to look at. Where is it in relationship to something like the five-day moving average? Is it above it? Is it below it? And then in the shorter term, is it trending up? And as of right now, the bullish bias is still remain it remains to be up, despite the longer trend on the daily. So it's all about putting these puzzle pieces together. You have different time frames, and then you have different trends in those time frames, and and then it's it's all about syncing them all together. If that makes sense, I'm trying my best here to simplify it.
1: No, no, but that 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 point is important. So I, I keep going back to this this idea that you know one can be both bullish and bearish at the same time. It purely depends on time frame. And to your point, divergences can resolve themselves over longer time periods or shorter time periods. But you've got to look at the totality of information to really get a sense of whether, again, the probabilities which are really unknown are at least elevated or not elevated. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's just kind of a, a interesting way to say it. So, okay, I always make this point that every strategy has three components. One is your signal, your indicator, right? Moving average, in my case, lumber to gold, utilities, treasure, whatever it be. Two is the look back period, 200-day moving average, 50-day moving average, whatever your time frame you're looking at. And then three is the opportunity set, which we hit on a little bit earlier. Talk about some of the indicators that you find from a technical perspective are uh, worth paying attention to and maybe indicators that you think are overhyped.
2: Indicators that I like to pay attention to. So... I guess it just goes down to timeframes, for one. It really does matter if you're shorter term. I I, I like to look at shorter term stuff. I like the BP charts, so bullish percent index, and I like to apply an RSI to that. And I'm looking at the daily BP charts, and something that I've noticed in the shorter term is when you do have the RSI going up to around 70, that's not typically where, hey, the market's going to all of a sudden pull back, but it does indicate um, a period where, hey, if if you were long from the low end and it comes up to the high end, maybe look to consider to take profits or partial profits, or it might be a period of digestion where the markets kind of just sink in a little bit, and that's actually what we're going through right now. The BB chart getting extended from an RSI perspective, and use that term loosely, overextended or whatever the case is, oversold and overbought, and then the markets kind of digesting those moves right now. As far as like an indicator that I guess that's not as useful you know, it's, it's hard to say because data is data. So I don't put too much weight on anything. It's just data. Like, for example, the one that I just recently talked about was the SPIP over GOVT. Like it's data right now, and it could be worthless in, in a little while, but it's just telling it's just telling me something and, and maybe give me a warning. I guess the only analogy that I can really use here with that is, you know, think of like a, a bank robber and he robs one bank, and then he goes to the next bank and goes to the next bank. And all of a sudden you have this data and you're like, hey, he robbed these three banks, chances are he's going to go rob that bank at this specific time. Instead of trying to figure out why and that might be taking place, you would probably put some sort of risk mitigation in place to make sure that nothing bad happens on that specific time, if that
0: makes sense.
1: Yeah, I I think that's spot on. Okay, so you said something earlier, which I think um, is an interesting thing to, to talk more about. You said price action is emotion. And I know that's a very classic argument that technicians will have as far as why they look at Prices, why they argue for support and resistance. Now I'm curious, Mike, if if you think that maybe that is a little bit more nuanced and harder than people think in practice, because we know a good part of trading is really algorithmically driven, right? And it's just machines trading against machines. And while volatility is maybe an expression of doubt and emotion, it's probably largely automated to some extent. How do you separate out price action that might be more algorithmic than price action that's more emotion? Because I would think emotion is really the key way to determine whether now's the time to buy or sell, as opposed to these algorithms, again, that are running the show for the most part. Yeah, it's an excellent question. It's very hard to decipher
2: what it is that you're reading or how to interpret it. I I guess the way that I would and that's where the trend is your friend comes in for me specifically. So I would be looking at what the trend is. And if, if it is algorithmic trading that's taking place, and that's pushing the market up in a specific direction, I still am under the impression that strong stocks will get stronger, the market will kind of follow that direction until it doesn't. So that is why I just watched I watch the trend and also relative strength, right? So if I notice that consumer discretionary is getting really weak relative to the SPY, that's a clue into something that players may be getting out of consumer discretionary or even tech, and they might be shifting somewhere else. So it's like looking at sector rotation, right? And year-to-date performance, and you can visually see all of these things taking place. And that's a top-down type of approach in trading with the specific trend that's going. And obviously right now, energy and um, utilities have been some decent trades this year, and then the dollar and also commodities.
1: Well, and to your point, there's also a, a degree of consistency when it comes to relative strength. So, usually when you see utilities, for example, outperforming, consumer staples are also outperforming. Well, when consumer staples are outperforming, likely consumer discretionary is underperforming because it's the sort of shifting of the pendulum from uh, want to need, right? Kind of offensive consumer to defensive consumer. So, I think you're spot on that. Now, before I bring in some of the audience here, uh, the, the trend is your friend. And again, that's one of those lines that a lot of technicians will put out there. And I always make it a point that I think a lot of people say the trend is your friend, but they never quite identify when the trend ends, right? Nobody ever really tells you until long after the fact. So from your vantage point of looking at markets, one, how do you actually define what a trend is? I know that sounds like a simple question, but in reality, you'd be surprised how many p- different answers you get to that. And then how do you know if the trend is broken?
2: Yeah, so there's indications that a trend can get weak. So, for example, leading up till this year, I was hammering on the table that there's something like something bigger going on behind the curtain. If you just peek behind the curtain, there's something going on, and it was just the percent of stocks have just been falling off a cliff, but the market just perpetuated itself higher. And those type of things eventually will catch up. I don't know what if it, if it's going to result in the downside or the upside, but that right there is a warning sign. But the trend is still up. How I define a trend, I typically look at three months. Higher highs, higher lows, lower highs, lower lows, and or neutral. And I'll look at the ranges and so forth. But typically, I look at around three. And then on the shorter timeframes, it could be just five days. And it'll just be paying attention to the direction of where that five-day moving average is. I'm not a macro pro here that understands the oil industry all too well. But what I can see here from a chart perspective, using technical analysis, yes, the rate at which oil goes up it's been moving and been increasing and we just came out for i think it was um march we saw this kind of blow off type of valve that was during the rush of ukraine that that took place and then ever since that point we've been in this consolidation for the last few months and on a shorter term those three months we've been putting in higher highs and higher lows and if you look at the chart you can just simply just look at the trend where it's been tagging these higher lows and higher lows now, or higher higher lows, sorry. And then right at about 115, there was this little clue that happened from a technical perspective. It came up to 115 in the middle of May. And then you saw this little shallow pullback. And that shallow pullback there was an indication to me Saying that the, that that we could very well see a pop through 115, and as it stands right now, we are through that 115. We recently just hit the 120, and the chart looks very strong. And it looks like it continue to take off. So personally, for me, looking at the looking just looking at a chart, it, it looks like it can go a lot higher. And and that's pretty much just uh, you know my take on it, just by from a charting perspective.
1: I'll add to that. So I shared at the top of the space the relative ratio of energy to tech. So if you look at the XLE. ETF and defy that by the XLK, tech ETF. It's interesting, right? Because for all the talk about oil and it's already been a big move and can it continue, when you look at the energy stock side, you can argue there's a hell of a lot more room to go, at least relative to technology, right? It's barely budged in terms of that, that our performance in the ratio is basically back at January 2020 level. So if you're going to have a real oil and energy sector secular bull market, this could really, you know, rocket higher against tech. Now, having said that, I am curious, Mike, about your thoughts around shorting, Uh, because one thing that I think is interesting about this particular relationship of energy to technology stocks is you can make a case that maybe the best thing to do is simply go neutral. You go long energy stocks, you go short tech stocks, and and bet that ratio keeps going higher, and that way who the hell cares what the market itself does because – You're basically just doing a spread trade. Talk about if you've ever employed strategies like that, how do you think think about shorting outright or how do you think about shorting for spread trading? So I'm
2: not much um, of a short – I I don't like shorting all too much just because of the risks involved. I will take short positions on occasion from a tactical perspective, but it's very hard – Uh, for my trading personality, it's just, it requires so much more attention. And sometimes it's just better to, instead of trying to do more is to remain, like you said, neutral. So yeah, I think that there's some really good shorting opportunities right now in the market, especially looking at things that have been breaking these key levels. And the trend is clearly down. So you can benefit from doing it, but also you can benefit from not doing it and just stay neutral. Because if you are shorting the market, instead of staying neutral, you take the risks of obviously losing capital.
1: By the way, everyone that's here, please make sure you follow Mike on Twitter and, of course, uh, his YouTube channel. I shared it at the top here. Okay, so let's pivot a little bit because at the beginning you said you started doing all this content, the videos, because you wanted to show a degree of accountability. And accountability is a funny thing, especially in the Fintwit space because people can naturally delete uh, things that they said before that make them rewrite history in terms of their own accountability. And it's also one of those things where you leave yourself vulnerable to criticism. All right. I want you to talk about how important accountability is to your own self-learning and what you maybe think people get wrong when they look at others that are putting their themselves out there, putting out, out their winning trades or losing trades. What is it that those critics really get wrong when they see um, a particular thing isn't working and a particular signal is not working?
2: Yeah, critics, they're, they're nonstop. But it's, I always come back to, okay, why did I get into this? Why did I start doing it? And it was really for myself. It was really just to document the process, to learn. And then it, it, one of the best ways to learn is by by teaching. So I'm constant. You know, you're always a constant student of the markets, and you're going to deal, with, especially in the public eye, you're going to deal with trolls or whatever you want to call them. But the reality is, you are always going to have things that are wrong. I, I don't I, I don't understand why you would want to delete if you're wrong, and it, it, because people. And I think this is why maybe my audience is growing is I I don't mind saying that I'm wrong. And I think people actually want to see that, surprisingly. Some people give you a hard time about it, but a lot of people actually want to see what went wrong because that's where you actually learn the most. And as long as you take that knowledge of being wrong and you can convert it into something later down the road, it's a lesson that's very important.
0: And I'm, ah, okay.
2: I'm, I'm, I'm all the time, but I, you, the only thing that you can control, right, is when you get out of those positions or when you shift. Be wrong, but be wrong quick.
1: We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash Live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. But, But also, I think part of this, and I've mentioned this or addressed this idea with other traders I've had on. It's hard to know what wrong actually means right? Because, and I'm sure you've been through this many times yourself as you can self-reflect and look at times where you're going through losses or you're desynced. The reality is if you think about, again, this idea that it's about probabilities, right? You can be wrong in the outcome, but right in your process. And if you follow that process over a consistent period of time, you'll be right on average, right? Even though on the single roll of the die, you're not, right? So that, that may be an interesting question to ask, which is that how do you know what actually is wrong?
2: So if you have a strategy and a process and a way to size positions, you can progressively add exposure as time goes. And when you start getting trades incorrectly, first off, the wrong thing, the only wrong thing that happens is if you break your strategy, right? So if you change from a strategy um, or if you ignore a stop loss, that is the only thing that's wrong. So you can get trades wrong all the time, but you can be right on the strategy and and i think that's the most kind of important aspect um of that now like for me personally being a breakout trader or a trend trader i noticed early on like my trades were not working out they kept on getting reverted and it is it's very annoying but what do i do i don't just size up or hold my positions i'll lower my position sizes and i'll wait till it starts working again and i got to a place where i sized up fully again and and then the trade went south on me. And, and then I had to scale right back. So it's been a, just a very difficult year. But I know for a fact that it'd be even more difficult if I would have broken from that strategy or held on to these losers. And, and just to add to that, this is where the, like, the timeline perspective gets a little skewed with people, right? So we have so much information flying at us. And people see these big moves. They want to chase it. Um, and, and so forth. And the thing is, when I say my trend is three months, well, your trend might be five years and that's short for you, but that could be long for me.
1: Uh, yeah, real quick. So, so okay. I'm I, I curious to hear your thoughts on how you look at currency in particular in, in the construct of how you look at markets. But so a couple of things. First of all, the, the, and I put out a paper that won the 2016 Dow Award called Leverage for the Long Run. And similar to the utilities paper, Lumber to Gold paper, the idea there is that you can create a strategy which over time does at least historically, theoretically, phenomenal if you simply go, you know, lever at equities when you're above a moving average, 10, 50, whatever time frame your look back period, and you delever when you're below a moving average. all right. And there will be an announcement actually related to that idea probably in a few months around something I'm, I'm uh, working on, which I, I'm excited about. But usually, first of all, when you're below a 200 moving average, you're already probably in a recession. That's not my opinion. That's historically what ends up happening in terms of the interaction of market ind- indicators and the real economy. But the other part of this is, and Mike, I think you'd agree with this, is that I know a lot of people use moving averages to determine trend, but moving averages are more about risk management and more about identifying higher volatility or lower volatility regimes. So, for example, when you're above a 200-day moving average, you tend to see more streaks day-to-day, two, three, four up days in a row, whereas where you're below, when you're below a moving average 200-day, you tend to see big up, big down, big up, big down which is essentially a volatility clustering. So when you see that we're below the moving average still, it goes back, I think, to Mike Silva's point here that the volatility is probably going to keep on staying elevated for a while because that's historically what happens when a major uh, stock market average is trading below its 200-day. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a, a a big downtrend. It could just mean a whole lot of chop. And I've seen you talk about that idea before, but maybe riff on that and talk about the dollar as well here.
2: Yeah. So the dollar does look very strong right now. <laughs> um, from my shorter term perspective, you got the higher highs, higher lows. I want to, when you're talking about the 200 daily moving average, I like to really get, you know, hey, is wind at our face here from the long position or is it at our back? And what, one thing that I like to do is, excuse me, you can zoom out um, even further on a larger time frame. So for example, the monthly time frame. And if you just apply something like a 5 EMA, all right, the 5 EMA is frequently tagged. And the direction of that right now is clearly down and we're disconnected from it. And being that it's frequently tagged, right? The, the, I think if we look at the SPY, I think the monthly five was um four 422 or 423, somewhere around there. But that just it just tells me like, okay, so we have overhead resistance and you can clearly see that when it's below it, it is more volatile. Um, another kind of interesting correlation that I'm sure you've seen was is the dollar and the S&P 500. It's almost like an inverse correlation has been like almost one for one. So when you see these dollar spike moves and it is still trending, it
1: still shows that the S&P 500 struggles to find its legs. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Okay, so let's pivot that a little bit to the current market environment, you know, summer months coming here and everyone always uses that sell in May, go away period. Although the reality is the best thing to have done is to sell in May last year. Uh, and stay gone uh, i'm curious What are, what's your analysis telling you now mike what areas are making you maybe excited about an up move or a down move what what do what you pay most attention to well from a
2: seasonality perspective we typically we ramp a little bit in june this is like looking at like the 20-year range and then you typically get some down move um, in june and it isn't until like back half of the year like october november december where you get somewhat of a ramp. So I'm looking forward to the more towards the end of the year. But as it stands right now, there's just not much to be overly excited about. All good things come to an end and energy has been, my watch list is comprised of all these energy stocks making these new 52-week highs and it's been working out great. But the moment that I start to see these breakouts start to fail, I just feel like it's not too far off from potentially turning more. So me personally, I would love to see the main index products get back above their monthly 5 EMAs to get a little bit more bullish, but it stands right now. It just, it's, it. I'm not focusing on really growing capital too much. I'm really just preserving it.
1: So I assume that means, Mike, that your cash is a situation, you don't really like to short, that you're just either heavily in cash or, or trying to trade very nimbly with small uh, percentages.
2: Yeah. So when I short, um, like I like being long because that's where I can size up my positions. When I'm short, it's at most, it's like half half a position. Anytime that I short because I I especially in bear markets, you get these rip facing rallies. My sizing on shorts are always small. For, for it to allow these type of volatile moves, so yeah, I have a big portion in cash, and then I obviously have some longs on, but and they're working fine, and I'm just letting them go because I don't want to I don't want to miss if if the market all of a sudden finds its legs and finds a bottom, I want to be a part of that. And I have a couple of things I look at for when I'll start pushing a little bit harder. But um, as it stands right now, yeah, I just feel a lot more comfortable being being in cash and then being partially exposed to the markets.
1: Okay. Now, again, you you put phenomenal content out there. You're you've been very public in saying you're doing this because you're also wanting to educate yourself through teaching, and I think that's such a wonderful way of of looking at anything in life. How much time do you spend during market hours actually looking at markets? I know that sounds like a strange question, but you know, sometimes the best thing to do is just not really pay that much attention to financial media or what the Dow is doing at any moment in time. Sometimes that's noise that creates sort of the wrong kinds of actions. Talk about about how much time you actually spend actively trading and paying attention to what's happening day to day or maybe week to week.
2: Yeah. So the last two and a half weeks or so, I've maybe placed one or two intraday trades on around there. I, I started this off doing day trading and intraday trading, but it just it was just a time suck. So it took a it took a lot of my time and it's it just it wasn't my personality type. So some people can do that very successfully. And and I did. I, I made some I made decent money, but it was like just income here and there. What I found that works best with me are longer term trades because I don't like being glued to the computer all the time. Now I do the YouTube channel. So I do need to be involved and see what is going on in the market. So I have content for that day because I do the um, daily briefs. But for the most part, as far as like actively trading, it hasn't actually been too much and it could change and it can adjust. But in recent weeks, um, even months, it's been quite minimal.
1: Yeah. I think (laughs) that's also how you keep your sanity, right? Because when you're in these kind of periods, it takes an emotional toll on you, right? When you're, making money one day and then losing money the next day. You're making money one day and then losing money the next day. That 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 dopamine hit at some point you get from markets just whipping your own emotions around. And that's another, I think, area to talk about, which is how do you control your own emotions when you're looking at your portfolio account, perhaps swinging, either swinging violently or maybe missing out because of an opportunity you know, cost. Because I do think that that's something that critics really don't understand, which is that you when you're going through a drawdown and then somebody's being critical of your approach. They're kicking you when you're down and you naturally are going to be feeling down anyway. So talk about that dynamic because I think that's more important than anything else. It goes back to your ability to stick to a strategy, manage more than the strategy itself. How do you manage your own emotions uh, when you're in these kind of periods? Yeah, if
2: you learn through time and you got to be very patient. So we talked about how I kind of like, I enjoyed playing poker and what, it wasn't just because of the risk management factor, but you know, I like tournament poker because I can sit there and just in these deep stack tournaments, I can sit there and I could be very patient for a very long period of time and not even play. There was a time where I remember winning these sit and go tournaments and I would only play two or three hands because everyone just kept on going back and forth and I was just sitting there you know, letting blinds draw me out and and striking when the time was necessary. So when, you know, when, when the emotions are high, you, you need to know yourself, right? You got to step back and, and you got to stick to the strategy. So for example, if you see it, know where you're going to get out, know where you're going to get in. And you could scale in position, whatever your strategy is, but it's its own self-journey. Everyone's psychology is going to be different. Some people are going to, like me personally, I'm not focused on like making a lot of money really quickly. If I can make one and a half percent every month at 2% a month, that's my goal. That adds up. But a lot of people like one or 2% a month, I, I, that's nothing <laughs> where they want to see these huge moves, but that means they're just going to be taking on more risks. So you got to just know yourself. So, I guess when I like look at indicators, I, I always wonder: Can I make an actionable trade based off of a specific indicator? Or Is it going to tell me to scale up a position or scale down a position? And it, it is insight seeing these short, high short interest stocks get squeezed uh, because we have been seeing that right across the board. It's not just GameStop; uh, these last few days or so, like a high short interest basket of stocks, the index have been uh, those those stocks have been rising quite rapidly, and you. This is something that you can see that takes place, especially when it gets faded in bear markets. And looking at GameStop, if I was just to use my back to the trend as your friend, you just look at the past one, two, three, four, five months, maybe even to 2022. I don't think we've moved anywhere for GameStop in 2022. I think it's just been up and down and up and down, but we're relatively flat on the year. So I don't know if I can see an actionable trade specifically or use this as an indicator, but you're right in pointing out seeing all these, these high short interest stocks get squeezed. And maybe Mike can add a little bit more to that.
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Yeah. And, and I like John the, the direction of the, the question, right? Because so there used to be this, and Mike, you, I'm sure you, you can talk about this quite a bit. There used to be this indicator tech, old school techni- technical analysis books would talk about, which is the odd lot indicator, right? So odd lots versus round lots are 100 share type numbers. Odd lots would be under 100 shares, right? And there used to be this theory around technicians that if you were to look at odd lots, the, the buys that are under 100 shares, it would indicate that's retail. Because the argument there was that retail couldn't afford buying 100 shares of a particular stock. And that that then became a contrarian indicator if you saw a bunch of these kind of small-lot buys because it meant retail was chasing probably the exact wrong moment, which is an equivalent of any, uh, uneducated speculators. Now, you got rid of the odd lots. Now you got fractional shares. Now you got commission-free trading. And I do think that there is a similar sort of odd-lot phenomenon that happens uh, – because of a lot of newbie traders and investors who believe that their analysis is is right just because of the way a chart looks or because of a meme or because of some reddit post or whatever it is as opposed to a hard education that comes at at mastering any domain so i I do agree with you and and i'll take it a step further john i think you're still seeing a lot of that nonsense in the crypto space right despite the luna crash you're seeing a lot of people still and a lot of these things like dogecoin i keep ranting on Uh, still having billions of market cap and the same sort of silly mentality around reasons that you should be buying any of these, which don't make any sense. We just peel the onion a little bit. I'm with you. I don't think you have, I've used this line before. I don't think you have a real bottom in a secular uh, bear market until you have some degree of PTSD where people just say, I'm never going to touch this particular trade or investment again. But let me turn that to you, Michael, a little bit around sentiment. Because again, it goes back to price is emotion we talked about the algo side but sentiment is i think always hard to really get a sense of it's something more you feel and something you can see i would argue how does sentiment play into the way that you look at markets and and where do you think sentiment is going back to the point here yeah
2: um w- really quick too on on, on what said about game stuff I, I did something that is interesting that maybe you want to you, you keep an eye on um and then i'll get back i'll get to your question here but If you look at the index products like the IWM, one of the key signs, a very small, subtle thing that took place was in the middle of May, this S&P 500, the NASDAQ composite, they made a new low, whereas the IWM small caps, they did not. And that gave a little bit of indications, a little bit of a divergence saying that, hey, we might be finding maybe not the bottom, but a bottom. And we've rallied from that point. So it's just a small little piece of information. Back to your question. Sorry, I got off topic there. Slightly, and you were talking about sentiment and where do we stand in the midst of that? I recently posted a a tweet here. I heard, who was it that I heard talking about this? I think it was, I I can't remember exactly who was talking about it, but if you just pull up like a long term chart of the VIX, you could use it as a fear, doubt, or whatever the case may be. But one thing that is very interesting, if you guys do see that chart, is if you just look at like the 40 marker and you just draw a horizontal line dating back to 1997. Every really big bear market, there was a blow off valve that took place through the 40 marker. And we just have not seen that. So you have long term capital management, the dot com bubble financial crisis, the market got shook up. That's when QE2 came in, right? Operation Twist. Yeah, the 2015 ish, the China stock market turbulence. And then you had the pandemic here. Um, just looking at a daily chart, the S&P 500 is down 20%. And I will say it's being very constructively taken apart. There's, there hasn't been any, it's just, I look at these weekly expected moves and we barely reach outside of these with the options market price and the implied volatility. It's just been this slow grind down with no capitulation, no no nothing. And is that going to come? Is it not? I don't know, but it is something interesting that um, that I found.
1: Well, which is at that point that you hear in the media, it's been an orderly sell off. In quotes, orderly sell off. You know, to your point, you haven't had that real sort of panic capitulation. It's been just a very painful, long period. Now, the only caveat there, Mike, is that's when it comes to the the large cap averages and the VIXs, obviously around the S and P. But we know there's been some nasty capitulation type of declines in a lot of other stocks and parts of the marketplace. So, how do you think about this? internal divergence that's happened. You mentioned mentioned small caps, right? Because I can make an argument to me that small caps have been an horrendous bear market for well over a year and that they're probably due for some kind of massive rally. But then again, I could have said that, and I have said that three months ago. Talk about that sort of aspect of the orderly sell-off uh, in the large cap averages versus the maybe not so orderly sell-off that's happened everywhere else, because I think it, it makes the analysis part of this much more complicated. So the orally sell-off in in, in the large cap, well, I mean, if we just take a
2: look at like, for example, we use the S&P 500, it's cap-weighted, and you just, it's the big tech stocks, and the big tech stocks, they just, they haven't got hit. They have been recently, but holy moly, like, some of them, some of them really got hit, but for the most part, if you just take a look at something like Apple, it's been relatively, it's been, re, re, it's been holding itself relatively together. And like you said, IWM, yeah, you, it has been in a bear market really since 2021, where it just went sideways for an entire year, and then all of a sudden, bam! Before you know it, we're down 30. percent So yeah, I, I stated earlier that one of the one of the things that kind of gave me warnings going into 2022 was just the amount of small caps that were just getting completely thrashed. And you're right. It seems as if it can really go both directions right now. It's like this. It's just a very difficult environment, obviously, to navigate. And and you've had these. So many stocks get just completely thrashed, eighty percent, right? The various stocks within Arc and other small cap stocks. But one big thing to pay attention to is obviously these big tech names, the mega cap, and they have been breaking, and they are in a bear trend right now. Right? We have lower highs, lower lows. But they still they can fall a lot further and that can and that can put a lot more weight to the overall market. Yeah what I would add to this is back to what I was saying earlier on was you know <laughs> markets markets move between this range contraction and range expansion. and I'm constantly looking at around a three month basis, for higher highs, higher lows. And in order to have trend change, you need to see these good trades take place, right? And as we're in these bear markets and we're putting in on a shorter term basis, these lower highs, lower lows, what I'm looking for is bases to start building, to go basically neutral. And I wanna see these large swings back and forth, start to consolidate and get tighter and tighter um, until that happens. And and by the way, when that happens, it goes right back to range expansion. So I'm not to say that is gonna form some sort of a bottom, that would be the process. Michael Gaia always shares um, the video of his dad talking about the four stages of market structure: right, accumulation, markup, distribution, and decline. And the thing is, when we're in decline, accumulation, right? If it uh, Brian Shannon says this frequently, is you know, if it doesn't scare you out, it'll wear you out. And the accumulation phase is a wearout phase, and it could take a long time in that phase to start marking itself back up again. So, a couple of things that you can look at from a very simple basis is like a forty-week. Uh, moving average, right? You want to see that start to flatten out to start to get back above. Um, you can use the 10-week, which is about the 50-day moving average, too, as well. And then just watch price actions start to contract again, and then you know that'll allow to back into risk a little bit better.
1: I will add to that real quick. I think your observation is spot on. It probably explains why you have still have so much um, new money going to some of these arc products and. So much interest still in these innovation stocks because there's, there's a a feeling out there that they ra- went round trip and they're going to now just immediately bounce back. But exactly to your point, history has shown that when you have moves like that, they tend to base if they're going to still be around for many years to come. So the frustration trade ends up being that it, it takes longer than you think. And I think that's where it's very clear new cycle has emerged, right? Because- time is the best way to see that. So with that said, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, everybody, please make sure you follow Mike Silva, check out his YouTube channel as well. Mike's uh, been kind enough to spend the hour here. I know it's very early where he is. So always, uh, appreciate that. I think this is a, it's a good conversation to have from a lot of perspectives, because I think the overarching theme here is you got to be nimble. You got to be very careful uh, and you got to manage risk in a very risky environment where even risk off is acting like risk on, which kind of goes back to my world. Mike, thank you so much for spending the time here. Again, everybody here. Thank you for joining and everybody enjoy the rest of your day.
3: The content in this program is for informational purposes only Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.